Welcome back to another episode of Michael and Us. As always, I'm Luke Savage. With me is... Will Sloan. And joining us today, all the way from Chicago, Illinois, home of uh, Barack Obama, friend of the show, Deep Dish Pizza, uh, lots of other cool stuff. Siskel and Ebert. (laughs) We're joined by my colleague and comrade and friend, Jacobin Managing Editor, host of the Vast Majority Podcast, author with Megan Day of Bigger Than Bernie, Micah Utrecht. Micah, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. So we're going to talk about the movie Rambo First Blood today. But uh, for the past two days, I've been knee deep in uh, something very Chicago themed. Well, not really, but kind of Chicago rooted, which is uh, Barack Obama's book. Ah, yes. My kind of town, Chicago, you know? (laughs) I I picked it up uh, picked it up at my local Indigo curbside recently, and I already said this on our uh, recent bonus episode. But the front kind of area of my local Indigo has basically just been turned into a warehouse for Barack Obama books. Like you could build a fort out of all the books. There's just like stacks of them, and it was very degrading going and picking up this book. I felt like I wanted to wear a hat saying like I'm just getting this to review it or something like that. But uh, I've been reading it, and uh, it's. I mean, it's like 700 pages long, so it's going to take me a while. But I'm already keen to talk to somebody about it. Um, Can I ask you, where are you in his life right now? Is he president yet? He's about to run for president. Okay. Um, I've just gotten through... The book starts before he becomes president? Yes, this is this is his third memoir. <laughs> and so, like, in typical Obama fashion, there's quite a buildup. There's about 100 pages leading up to him officially deciding to run for president. So I've just I've just gotten through a whole section about, you know, basically where he's sort of reluctantly talked into running for president. The the form of this chapter is incredible. It's chapter 4 and basically the structure is at the beginning he talks about how he's never really believed in the idea of destiny because if God has a plan, it's above like the trite individual actions and and destinies of individual people or whatever. Destiny is a bigger idea than that. And then throughout the course of the chapter, he proceeds to talk about how people like Ted Kennedy told him, like, this is your time. Like, there's something indelible. Like, there's something that's beyond description, but you have to grab a hold of it and things like that. So, like, the whole thing is all about the language of destiny. And he ends the chapter. I think this is absolutely fascinating and kind of speaks to what the book has been doing so far. I want to, uh, there's a couple little passages I want to read you guys, but he talks about, this is him sort of arriving at a point where he realized that he he actually does want to run for president. He's presented himself as being kind of reluctant about it. Um, and he met a lot of resistance from, uh, from Michelle Obama as well. And he says, if we won, I thought it would mean that my U.S. Senate campaign hadn't just been dumb luck. If we won, it would mean that what had led me into politics wasn't just a pipe dream, that the America I believed in was possible, that the democracy I believed in was within reach. If we won, it would mean that I wasn't alone in believing that the world didn't have to be a cold, unforgiving place where the strong preyed on the weak and we inevitably fell back into clans and tribes, lashing out against the unknown and huddling against the darkness. 
If these beliefs were made manifest, then my life made sense, and I could pass on that promise, that version of the world, to my children. You know, so that's the end of, of section one of the book. Section two is called Yes, We Can, and you can guess what that's about. That passage, I think, is very emblematic of what the project of this book is, at least so far. Obama is, I, I want to say off the bat, I mean, he is a very gifted stylist and, and kind of storyteller. You know, I think that perhaps because it's rare that politicians can write like this, people are maybe inflating like Obama's not the greatest writer who's ever lived, but he is a very gifted storyteller. And one of the things that he quite ingeniously does in this book and, and also in Dreams from My Father and The Audacity of Hope is he really inserts his autobiography quite naturally into this kind of wider American context that includes literally everything you could possibly imagine, like somehow includes America's entire history of struggle going back to like before the founding includes every sort of mid 20th century middle brow literary or cultural reference the music of bob dylan the music of billy holiday you know absolutely everything and so he kind of makes it so the destiny of america you know destiny being something he doesn't believe in hangs on his own life and where things end up and he does this so kind of effortlessly that it really appears organic rather than calculated and i think that's the true genius of obama and the true genius of the book there's just one other passage here I wanted to read that, again, I think this is from very early in the book, like page three or four, where he's talking about the Rose Garden in the White House, because, of course, when it begins, he's like beginning as as president. He's walking through the Rose Garden, and this is his description of the Rose Garden. Uh, he says, oh, how good that garden looked, the shady magnolias rising high at each corner, the hedges thick and rich green, the crabapple trees pruned just so, and the flowers cultivated in greenhouses a few miles away, providing a constant explosion of color, reds and yellows and pinks and purples. In spring, the tulips massed in bunches, their heads tilted towards the sun. In summer, lavender heliotrope and geraniums and lilies. In fall, chrysanthemums and daisies and wildflowers. And always a few roses, red mostly, but sometimes yellow or white, each one flush in its bloom. Now, that's not an interesting passage in the sense that there's no political weight to any of that. But I just want people to try to imagine John Kerry or Al Gore or Hillary Clinton or even Bill Clinton turning out a, a paragraph like that, that has kind of that level of sort of literary chops. And, you know, he's describing the Rose Garden, so he's going for symbolism here. And on a, on a kind of literary level, uh, it really works. Anyway, these are just some of the, the thoughts I've had being buried in this memoir. Micah, I did want to ask you, since you know, you're from Chicago and you, I know you've been active in Chicago politics for quite a while, what is your relationship to Barack Obama and what was your, what was your relationship to Barack Obama as kind of a figure in Illinois politics? Well, I moved to Chicago in January 2007. So uh, that, you know, I, and I wasn't here throughout his sort of Illinois heyday uh, in the state legislature or then as the senator. I was a junior, junior, senior. I was a senior in college. I went to school in Chicago. And I was a senior when Obama won the first time. And uh, I did not, I, I like to say, I, I voted for the first black president in my first presidential election, but she did not win. Cynthia McKinney of the Green Party uh, <laughs> lost in 2008. Uh, and, you know, it's not really something to brag about given away. Wow, just think if, if you'd have lost, you could have been like the Susan Sarandon of Illinois. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was there. I went to Grant Park in downtown Chicago on the night that he won. 
even though I hadn't voted for him. I mean, there was this kind of collective effervescence that you couldn't help but be swept up in, particularly in Chicago, but I think probably in any major city in America. I mean, there I remember the stories of people you know, high-fiving each other on the street after the day after the election, you know, stuff like that. So even though I didn't, I didn't buy it, even though I, you know, I was a radical and I wasn't going to vote for this guy, I wanted to sort of bear witness to what, what he had inspired. And it was amazing. It was like nothing I've ever seen. And, you know, I, I think that that experience was a really necessary one to bring us to where we are today. We had to go through this period in which a guy like Obama could win the presidency twice on the wings of high-flying rhetoric like the passage that you just read and kind of making you feel like he's saying something progressive, but like never actually nailing down, never ever actually giving any specifics to the agenda that he was going to carry out. It just sort of like felt good. It felt progressive. And like, so we had to go through that experience and then be let down by it in order to arrive at the point that we are at today, where, you know, many people have said that Obama could have won a third term if he had been able to run again. I mean, he's still incredibly popular, but certainly among a strong minoritarian current of especially young people in America, people are, are incredibly disappointed by him, and in, in some cases, disgusted by him. Uh, and we had to go through that in order to move into a more substantive left-wing politics in this country, I think. He's also the only one who's been able to pull off that particular magic trick, right? Seemingly every national-level politician who's tried to do a version of that has failed. I mean, there are many imitators, but there's only one, uh, you know, the, the OG, and that's mm -hmm. him. I mean, he's really, he's really good at it. You know, you watch Pete Buttigieg do his Obama impersonation. And it, it works for some people. You know, my my dad like likes to put a judge. But it does it doesn't even really work for your dad if he's honest with himself. Well, that's probably true. Maybe it would only work in like the Trump years where people are like, just give me so just let's strike up the old feeling, just a just a hint of it, please. But like, yeah, he's a it's a poor imitation of uh Obamaism, but yeah, he's got he's got a million imitators because it seems like a pretty good path in politics to go. I mean, you get to like give people goosebumps and make people inspired without actually promising them anything substantive and then you don't have to actually deliver on anything. Well, this is one of the things that's very striking about this book because if you're reading it, if you have even the faintest cynicism, you know, if you have any substantive criticisms of Obama, I mean, you notice very quickly how much he talks about idealism and things like that. And in the, one of the passages I just read you when he's saying, like, if I could be president, he's saying, if we won, I thought it would mean blah, 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 blah. If we won, it would mean that what had led me into politics. Um, so there's this kind of confluence of the we and the me that's very telling. But, you know, he's saying all this stuff like if we won it would mean that this grand vision I had was of America was true. But then he's very slippery on what the grand vision actually is. And, you know, this was the thing about the phrase, yes, we can. Like, yes, we can what? I mean, that was always the problem with it. Like, you know, he had all this rhetoric about organizing and transcending our problems and all this kind of stuff. But in what way he was always, you know, incredibly slippery and, you know, minimally programmatic. I will just say... One of the things, one of my slightly contrarian takes on the on the current moment and on from the left uh, left's perspective, the very you know discouraging year we we've had since a very encouraging you know eight weeks at the start of it, is that I actually think Joe Biden's victory in the primary, if Bernie wasn't going to win, I mean I guess the existence of Elizabeth Warren in the primary maybe complicates this slightly, but if Bernie wasn't going to win, Joe Biden winning was the best case scenario from our point of view 
in as much as it meant that the Democratic Party attempt, the attempt by kind of institutional liberalism in the United States to reset itself by creating another Obama figure essentially failed. I mean, the entire arc of the primary up until, you know, the Democratic establishment decided, okay, whatever, Joe Biden is our guy. You know, he might have come fifth in Iowa, but he's our guy. The entire arc was every month or two, there'd be a new cycle of like, all of a sudden we're hearing about this mayor from a small town in Indiana who we've never heard of before and is suddenly, you know, on the cover of New York Magazine. And who had sort of co-opted progressive and even some, in some cases, radical language that had emerged in the years since Obama's victory. Right, exactly. And, you know, and then, you know, they tried to do the same thing, I I guess, uh, you know, maybe messing up the order here. I mean, before that, they tried to do it with Beto. Uh, They tried to do it with Kamala Harris. They tried to do it with all kinds of figures who didn't even, weren't even successful or appealing enough to even have these kind of ephemeral media cycles. John Delaney, Eric Swalwell, Deval Patrick, the former Massachusetts governor who couldn't even fill like a small room and who got like, I can't remember, like a number of votes in Iowa lower than I got the one time I ran for public office. You know what I mean? So like Biden, Biden is is a, an old style Democratic machine politician and he's emblematic, I think, of the weakness sort of in the medium and long term, the weakness of American liberalism in crafting something that people find appealing. His Appealing was a kind of negative appeal. It was a defensive appeal that really appealed to people's kind of sense of we need just the safe and familiar because the Trump era is too confusing. And I actually think that's a much better outcome than if somebody like Pete or Beto had kind of resurrected the uh, the Obama shtick. Well, right. But that would seem to imply that such a thing were possible, that Pete actually could you know, restart that machine so soon after Obama tried it and disappointed so many people. I mean, I suppose he claimed to have won uh, Iowa. Uh, You know, he did decently in a few of the primaries and he clearly has a bright future ahead of him uh, as a, you know, a a petty petty bourgeois, uh, you know, liberal capitalist politician. Uh, But like, he's not going to be able to inspire. There's not going to be crowds in Grant Park in Chicago (laughs) when he ends up getting uh, elected to the presidency in 20 years or whatever. Well, what about that event where the lights went off and then everybody en masse turned on their cell phones and waved their cell phones in the air? (laughs) Weren't weren't you inspired by that? That, That's such a bizarre bizarre thing. It's like, what else would people do? Of course people, they're they're not moved by some, like, I don't know, collective spirit to do that. They're just like, hey, it's dark. These are the lights that we have. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to see a lot more contrived you know fake power goes out type they saw they saw the bird land on bernie's podium and thought how can we get a bit of that mojo (laughs) they're like releasing butterflies in the (laughs) gymnasium hoping one like lands on pete's nose or something yeah the the bernie thing the bernie bird moment from 2016 what i liked is how there were actually like bernie bird truthers who were like the the bird is a false flag it's a psyop like this is too perfect. Like they were actually very jealous of the fact that Bernie had this quite moving and sort of spontaneous moment. I don't have anything profound to say about that. It's just very funny. John Rambo, a drifter just passing through their town. Morning. Headed north or south? North. I jump in. I'll make sure you're heading the right direction. Huh? You got some place I can eat around here? 
There's a diner about 30 miles up the highway. Is there any law against me getting something here? Yeah, me. I want you to book this gentleman for vagrancy, resisting arrest, carrying a concealed weapon. They knew he was innocent. Starting to dislike you a lot. And they didn't give a damn. John Rambo, one man who's been pushed too far. You're finished! You've gone as far as you're gonna go! Anyway, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we do actually have a movie to talk about besides our usual uh, banter. Micah was very keen to discuss Rambo First Blood. Weirdly enough, this is not our first Rambo episode. We actually, I think in the last, I don't know, six or seven months, talked about Rambo... Is it called Rambo Last Blood? Where it's something that almost has the production values of a Steven Seagal movie. If people want to watch it on Amazon Prime, I I think it's like free if you have a, a Prime account. And I'm not just saying that because Jeff Bezos is a sponsor of our show. But, uh, but <laughs> I, I, you know, I warn you, it is... I mean, it's not for the faint of hearted. It is brutally violent and hideously reactionary. I mean, Rambo plays a sort of like border vigilante who's like halcyon existence on a farm is like interrupted by some like, you know, crudely caricatured Mexicans who kidnap a young woman in his care. And then he has to go on like a terror streak down into Tijuana or something to to rescue her and to carry out revenge or something. Rambo has to do a tour of duty with each villain du jour for the United States, right? He has to like to get the POWs out of Vietnam. He's got to go into Afghanistan. He's got to fight the drug cartels. He's got to do it all. In part four, I think it was uh, uh, the conflict in Burma that he that he went to stop. Have you seen part four? No, after part three, I was like, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I watched oh, one, man. two, three. But part four is the best going. one in my opinion. But anyway... <laughs> But so, Micah, you were you were very keen to discuss First Blood, and it's a movie that I think you saw for the first time just in the last month. So why did you want this to be the movie? Well, you say the name Rambo, right? And that has all these connotations, connotations which, as we were just discussing, are largely accurate for every Rambo movie but the first one. Uh, you know, Rambo means this sort of like unbridled masculinity and rippling muscles and mowing down the brown people, you know, being unafraid to meet out violence. And in fact, only knowing violence, that's the only way that you know how to interact in the world is to be killing people all the time. And and yeah, that's, that's an accurate depiction of uh, the other Rambo movies besides first blood. But uh, I watched first blood just because I had never seen it. And it, it was not a Steven Seagal movie, right? It was not, just a, a kind of empty uh, set him up, shoot him down kind of deal. There's like a lot more going on here uh, than I had any clue I was going to be experiencing when I like was stoned on a Saturday night and just decided <laughs> to watch Rambo for the first time. We do not uh, endorse and- drug use on the podcast. I just <laughs> want to say. Uh, and then I watched it a second time and there was like even, even more there. Now I'm, Upon the second watching, I'm not fully sure if I'm ready to say that it's not a reactionary movie. And maybe we can talk about that once we get into it. But there's certainly a lot more going on in this movie than I was expecting when I first put it on. Uh, And it's this like really fascinating cultural document of America in the the post 60s America, Ronald Reagan's America, etc. Well, First Blood takes place seven years after the end of the Vietnam War, where A drifter by the name of John Rambo visits the home of a friend in Washington state. He learns, alas, that this friend has died of cancer brought about by exposure to Agent Orange during the war. 
Rambo, who we, we get the general sense that he is probably homeless, has nowhere to go. So he wanders into a nearby town where he's quickly accosted by the sheriff. They don't take too kindly to long-haired drifters in this town. So the sheriff picks him up in his car and drives him to a diner outside town. When Rambo tries to return, he's arrested and tortured by the sadistic police force in the town. And this triggers memories of the torture that he suffered on the other side of the world. And it flips a switch in Rambo, turning him into the killing machine that he was in Nam. Uh, this is no ordinary man, as we are reminded by Colonel Sam Troutman, played by the great Richard Crenna. He explains that Rambo in Vietnam was trained simply to kill, and this he did with a blom. You mentioned that the film is somewhat politically ambiguous, and the real villains of it for, for much of the film are the chief deputy and the sheriff of the town who torture Rambo, and then when Rambo kills the chief deputy, the sheriff sees it as a mission of personal revenge to capture him and doesn't allow Colonel Troutman to do his job. So it's it's very much about a kind of like corrupt and reactionary police force. Uh, but also Rambo, as we learn as the film goes on, the character is built from the popular myth that People returning from Vietnam were constantly being spit on and called baby killers and this and that by, you know, protesters who uh, really caused us to lose the war on the home front, you know. And that all comes to a head in uh, a rather powerful monologue that Rambo delivers at the very end of the film when he's finally confronted and brought back down to earth by Colonel Troutman. It's over. Nothing is over. Nothing. You just don't turn it off. It wasn't my war. You asked me, I didn't ask you. And I did what I had to do to win, but somebody wouldn't let us win. And I come back to the world, and I see all those maggots at the airport protesting me, spitting, calling me baby killer and all kinds of vile crap. Who are they to protest me, huh? Who are they? Unless they've been me and been there and know what the hell they're yelling about. It was a bad time for everyone, Rambo. It's the least reactionary of the Rambo films. I know, Micah, that this inspired you to go on a journey through Vietnam War cinema. You watched the first two Rambo sequels, as well as some other ones like Apocalypse Now and the notoriously reactionary Hanoi Hilton. Where does this fall in that ecosystem of Vietnam movies? Well, there's a couple things to say about that. I mean, on the on the one hand, okay, you mentioned that uh, basically the entire plot of this film revolves around him like killing and shooting or maiming cops, which if you were to make this movie today, like you wouldn't be able you wouldn't be allowed to do this, right? You wouldn't be able to have a, a soldier like hunting police officers, setting up booby traps with the spike uh, you know sharps tree spikes that like you know nail them in the leg and they start bleeding all over i mean like the amount of violence that is meted out towards uh, america's boys in blue it would certainly not be uh, allowed in, in contemporary america there'd be like thin blue line protests outside of the movie theater if you tried to do this in america today. and in fact the police are kind of depicted as enforcers of middle class values as much as like the soviets are villains in rambo 3 american small town cops are the villains in first blood it's like kind of astonishing to see like i don't really remember the last time i saw a movie certainly not like a big budget action movie where that was uh, the case. So, you know, that sets it apart from much of American cinematic history in that regard. 
I mean, it, I, this journey that I have gone on since watching Rambo one <laughs> has taken me uh, in, in many directions. Uh, one of the things that is really interesting about this film to me that, that's different from some other uh, films is that if you watch a, a movie like, let's say, Platoon or even Apocalypse Now, the Viet Cong don't really appear as like protagonists. Like in Platoon, like you see them, they're running around, they're getting strafed, they're getting bombed. But you don't, you don't see you know, close-ups of a, of a Viet Cong soldier's face. Uh, they, they don't have much of a sense of agency. You see their bullets like whizzing at American soldiers, but you don't really like get much of a sense of like them as characters. They're just there to, you know, they're a blob that's like shooting at Americans and causing misery to Americans. And I would say that is most Vietnam movies, at least that I've watched recently. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but out of curiosity, have you seen The Deer Hunter? With, which... So I did watch The Deer Hunter, and The Deer Hunter is obviously a different take. You've got ones where the, the Vietnamese, uh, North Vietnamese, don't really appear as like significant characters with, you know, you don't, you don't get the sort of portrait of individual North Vietnamese soldiers or whatever. And then you have something like The Deer Hunter, which uh, a fascinating uh, movie from a, a, certainly aesthetically and in, in some ways in terms of uh, the story itself. But you can only have a portrait of them doing this incredibly grotesque and barbaric acts towards soldiers that are completely fabricated from whole cloth from the screenwriter's perspective. Like the deer hunter, you know, the scenes in Vietnam are all about, you know, the Russian roulette game uh, where these Viet Cong soldiers are, you know, spinning the chamber of the revolver and, and making the American soldiers click the trigger and we'll see if they end up, you know, shooting themselves in the head or not. This did not happen in Vietnam, right? This is like, so, uh, this is a total fantasy, uh, but it had to be, you know, you, you had to give the Viet Cong this sort of uh, uh, insanely wild brutality and barbarity to depict them to serve as the foil for uh, the Americans coming home, you know, as, as damaged goods. So what's interesting to me about Rambo is that the total screen time that the Vietnamese get in Rambo is probably what? four seconds three seconds i mean there's like i think maybe two flashbacks that rambo gets while he's being accosted by these police officers and in some cases there are really you know there's scenes like when the uh, the deputy is dead in the gorge and he's like rambo's looking at his dead body and you hear the music like taking him back to, ha to have a flashback then it stops you don't even get to see the vietnamese in the flashback but you just understand that he's having a flashback and what was fascinating to me about this as a device, which sets, this is what kind of sets it apart from many other Vietnamese, Vietnam War movies. It's almost like the North Vietnamese are like the sun. They're like too bright to stare at, right? Like what they were able to do to Rambo was, you know, so horrifying and so powerful that, that you can only catch like half second snippets of it. Even though they're the whole precipitating incident for the entire movie, they only appear in three in three or four seconds worth of uh, flashbacks. And that was fascinating to me because this movie is all about Rambo, the killing machine, right? Rambo who can take on an entire small town police department. They have to call in the national guard and he still ends up defeating them all. But you have to kind of remember that <laughs> the whole reason he is fighting all these people is because the Viet Cong captured him and tortured him. And so if you think about it, you know, the movie doesn't want you to go in this direction. But if you think about it, you're like, well, Rambo is this killing machine who could take this whole small army 
and yet he was captured and defeated by the Viet Cong. So like if that if Rambo is that amazing of a super soldier, like how how incredible of fighters must these Viet Cong soldiers have been that they could capture him and defeat him and and torture him and all that. Something I think is worth thinking about in relation to, you know, Vietnam movies in general and particularly this one is the way in which uh you know movies about the Vietnam War very quickly, I mean they emerged very quickly after the war and they very quickly became sort of these canonical parts of American culture. They had a big impact um, and, and, you know, global culture as well. I mean, I think to a large extent, they helped sort of define or redefine the entire sort of war movie genre. And define the war itself. Uh, yeah, oh, very, yeah, very much so, that that too. And, and I think that is true of Vietnam in a way that is not true of the smaller number of films that have come out about the Iraq War or about any, you know, American imperial war since 2001. You know, there have been a handful of those, but I don't think any of them have really had, you know, anything like the cultural resonance. I think that the films that there have been are less introspective about the war. They're less critical of it. But I will say that having said all of that, I think that there's a general criticism that you can mount of the whole sort of zeitgeist of Hollywood Vietnam War films, which, Mike, I think you were kind of uh, partly getting at earlier, which is that, you know, these films, for the most part, do not do a very good job. Like, if they're critical of the war, they're critical of, like, Look at what this has done to us, you know, and to to our to our boys, you know. In Apocalypse Now, you know, there is that one scene that shows the Marines. There's the you know the famous helicopter attack scene where they attack the the village, and you know, there's a few other scenes, I guess, of you know the Marines, you know, I mean, behaving in a way that's that's pure evil. But even you know, even in that movie, like the scenes that I think are the most memorable are ones like is it when they arrive at the Dulong Bridge. And, uh, you know, Martin Sheen is kind of going through the little fortifications they've built and there's people like shooting at stuff. And it's this like absolutely hellish scene, but it turns out that they're not really shooting at anyone. Like there's nobody there. It's like the jungle itself and like the war, which is kind of almost this abstraction has like turned these GIs into just like madmen, basically. And I think that's a general criticism you can mount of... um, of kind of the Vietnam War movie zeitgeist. But having said all that, I do think Rambo First Blood is probably one of the best of these kinds of movies and that it does have a progressive side as well as, uh, a, you know, a kind of a more reactionary side that's partly encapsulated by the thing Will mentioned earlier and, you know, Rambo's monologue about, you know, arriving back at the airport and being spit on by hippies or whatever the thing is. You know, there's a scene very early in the movie that to me, I think, is in some ways the most crucial line of dialogue in the film. And it's right after Rambo gets picked up by the the cop, by the sheriff. You know, he's telling Rambo about the town and he's saying, you know, it's a small town that's boring. And, you know, what does he say right after he picks Rambo? Right as, he, as he's picking Rambo up, he says, you know, the way you look, that flag on your clothing, you know, people here aren't, they're not going to look kindly on that. And he says, you know, this is a boring town and he wants to keep it boring. And I think one way you can read that, and I think this is something that the film's doing that I really like, you know, you can read it as the United States wants to be this like imperial power that imposes its will on the rest of the world. But to a large extent, it doesn't want there to be domestic consequences for that. It wants to keep all that stuff at a real distance, even in the case of something like Vietnam, where lots of young men were actually drafted, you know, conscripted and forced to serve the state in this hideous war abroad. Even seven years on, nobody wants to be reminded of this. The head of local law enforcement 
actually considers it kind of his patriotic duty, you know, as a sheriff in this small town to, to we need to keep this away because this cannot intrude on our perfectly bucolic parochial American setting where people go to the diner, they go to the gas station, they have conversations about small things and they don't want their lives interfered with, with the trifle of this uh, massive sprawling military apparatus with which we project our power abroad. So that's the thing that I like most about this film. And to me, that kind of early section is more crucial to kind of its critique than even Rambo's famous monologue at the end. Well, yeah, exactly. Like the movie could have been, it it could have even followed the same basic plot line, but begun with these supposed protesters spitting on him when he gets home from Vietnam. But it doesn't go that way. You get a mention of that at the end, but like the villain is American cops. The, the, The cops's job is to sweep the town of, like you said, the sort of detritus of the American imperialist war machine abroad. Like, like sweep it under the rug, like take him out of town. You know, who cares where he goes as long as he just like continues on about his way. And, you know, not only that, but as you already mentioned, the beginning scene when he's looking for his former uh, comrade from Vietnam and finds out that he died of cancer from Agent Orange. I mean, that's not an indictment of the hippie protesters. I mean, that is an indictment of the people who sent Rambo to Vietnam in the first place. It is the, uh, the masters of war of the American imperial state who, you know, dunked him and everybody else in, in Agent Orange. I mean, there's a clear anger about that that is not a reactionary anger. It is a, an anger at the imperial machine going about its business in Vietnam. And there's an anger too, a sense that the masters of war didn't do enough to prepare these people for their trip back. Like, yes, there are hippies spitting on them, supposedly, but there was no landing pad for them. Yeah. And the other thing that I noticed on the second watching of this movie that I didn't pick up the first time is that what Rambo is doing against these cops is that Rambo has become the Viet Cong, you know, on American soil. Like he is the vastly outgunned uh, warrior who just threw crawling around in the forest, including at some points crawling around in tunnels, literally in like a mine shaft, right? Uh, exactly like the North Vietnamese were doing in, in Vietnam. He's using these sort of like crude weapons that he fashions. I, I realized on the second watching, the scene where the sheriff's deputy is shooting at him from a helicopter that has to be purposely constructed to be like the sheriff is the American troop in Vietnam, like shooting from the helicopter, as we've seen in all of the, you know, million scenes from, you know, Vietnam documentaries with, uh, you know, fortunate son playing in the background or whatever. <laughs> like that's what now Rambo is the, like the Vietnamese soldier or the Vietnamese uh, civilian or whatever, uh, who is getting shot at by the uh, American Stay and he and he defeats them in the same way that the uh, the Vietnamese defeat the American soldiers in Vietnam, which that's kind of an incredible thing to do. I'm not sure where it sort of lands politically. It's like on the one hand, you know, it was Americans who were committing these incredibly horrific human rights atrocities against the Vietnamese, and to sort of flip it around and make it look like the sold the American soldier is the one who's the victim of that is obviously a, a kind of a travesty to to the Vietnamese who are the ones who really suffered in that war in, in incredible 
numbers and, and incredible horrors. Uh, but on the other hand, the fucking soldier, he's he's the Viet Cong now. Like that's that's not a, a move that you're supposed to be able to make in American cinema where the anti-hero of the movie becomes public enemy number one for America in the 60s and early 70s, which was uh, the North Vietnamese. That's just sort of like an amazing move for the filmmakers, again, particularly of a mainstream blockbuster action movie like this one to, to choose to turn him into the Viet Cong. Well, and if we if we take that interpretation even further, like uh, assume that the film intends to draw that parallel, which I think you've made a very convincing case that it does. I mean, what is revealing about John Rambo's particular type of violence is that he only kills when he has to. I mean, I think there's only that one cop that he actually kills, right? And I think it's kind of an accident. Am I right? Like he's not even meaning, he doesn't even mean to kill that cop. And with the rest of them, it's just booby traps in the woods that are non-lethal. He's trying to like scare people like he runs into that boy in the woods who's just there like hunting and all he does is throw the gun away and then and then run off the sheriff he actually like has a chance to kill him this sadistic sheriff who's you know been presiding over the police station when where he was tortured and you know he holds a knife to his throat and just says let it go you know he's just trying to scare them he's not actually trying to kill anybody you know his violence is is pretty much purely defensive and it's his most brutal tendencies such as they are really only set off by people attacking him in a completely unjustified way so if we want to take that reading of the film to its natural extreme it actually is about vietnamese resistance and it's kind of celebrating it but uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that's too far that's certainly a very uh interesting and and sympathetic reading of the film don't end it like this back there i can fly a gunship i can drive a tank i was in charge of million dollar equipment back here i can't even hold the job fucking guys It's been a while since I've seen the sequels, but my memory of them is the implication is that the real reason that uh, America lost the Vietnam War is that it was too constrained by the rules, you know, and so these Viet Cong uh, weren't constrained by such liberal niceties as codes of conduct and that sort of thing. And we have to really fight on that level. And so it like Rambo becomes more of a like Dirty Harry or a Batman type figure, which which I think is like similar, but pointedly different than the point that the first movie is making yeah the other ones are just empty jingoistic american propaganda for war i mean the the, the second one kind of takes what was clearly a, a, a reactionary thread in the first one and really runs with it, which is like, it's all about the POWs who are left behind in Vietnam because the goddamn politicians like wouldn't wouldn't do what it would. It... Which was kind of a popular cause on the right at the time, wasn't it? Among right-wing Hollywood celebrities, even, there was, there was a lot of interest in going over there and finding the boys left behind. Right, and it, many people write about this. Rick Perlstein writes about it in The Invisible Bridge. I mean, that becomes a way to sort of like avoid having to really reckon with the fact that the world's most powerful imperial power was defeated in a war against you know an incredibly poor country uh mm-hmm. despite outgunning the country despite all kinds of whatever you know massacres like Milai to dropping napalm to everything that was done to them this country could not be bowed and so rather than like having a kind of reckoning with that reality if you can just point to the pow's then you're like well yeah actually that's the real tragedy of this war that there are these pow's who are left behind which is also what you see if you watch hotel hanoi for example and and it's something to talk about it's you know obviously the the 
the myth of the soldier who gets spit on by the protesters serves the same purpose, right? It's like, rather than reckoning with this war, it's like, well, yeah, maybe the war was bad, but how about how they treated our boys when, when they got home, right? Uh, and like Rambo, First Blood, obviously is a really central text in spreading that myth in America. I mean, like I watched uh, earlier today a documentary by, uh, that, that featured the sociologist Jeremy Jerry Lemke, who wrote the book, The Spitting Image. Uh, he's the, the go-to guy about this myth. And in the documentary, you know, they have him talking about the myth and then they show the scene from Rambo, First Blood, where he, where at the very end, he's talking about getting spit on. So as, as much as the, the sort of, uh, there are there are a lot of interesting things happening in the in the movie. We can't avoid the fact that First Blood was really central to the propagation of that uh, myth, that that propaganda of, of soldiers getting spit on. And like, all you have to do is watch the other Rambo films to see how that myth gets used in increasingly reactionary directions in the years after that movie was made. I have to say that the part of Rambo's monologue, the kind of less famous part. Where he's talking about how in Vietnam he was charged with, you know, he could he could be in a tank or he could be in a helicopter. He was responsible for like million dollar pieces of equipment on behalf of the state. He was responsible enough to be given charge of these things. And then back in America for seven years, he hasn't been able to hold down a job or find a purpose. I mean, I think you have to be pretty cold hearted not to be genuinely, you know, moved and kind of upset by that. And I'm, I, I guess I don't really have any profound point to make here, but uh, that was the part of the monologue that I found the most affecting. And I think it's difficult not to be sympathetic there. Well, can I even say about the, you know, hippie spitting on him part? Like, obviously, that is a myth. But is it possible to feel empathetic at the very least towards these soldiers who you know most of whom were raised by world war ii vets who all came back from what is generally considered to be a just war and were all came back and were greeted as heroes whereas this generation of servicemen you know didn't necessarily return they weren't spat on but they didn't return necessarily to an atmosphere that regarded it as a just or celebratory war to, to what extent can and should one be empathetic towards that that's a good question and this is the spitting stuff is to me a clearly reactionary trope and it makes anti-war protesters out to be these villains that they weren't but the the part of the monologue that luke was talking about the line is something like i I had these pieces of million dollar equipment and now i can't even get a job parking cars or something like that and you know not to make uh, everything about uh, our lord and savior bernie sanders but you know, I feel like Bernie Sanders has figured out the right way to talk about these kinds of issues, right? He, throughout his entire political career, with, with a few important exceptions, uh, has stood pretty steadfastly against imperialist war and has, from the get-go, has always been uh, opposed to those wars, but has always talked about veterans and soldiers as, you know, like rank-and-file workers. Like, he knows that people who are soldiers are... Uh, you know, they are not the masters of war. They are the grunts who are carrying out the policies that are uh, chosen by the masters of war. And they often take the, those positions, or I mean, certainly in the case of Vietnam, I mean, people were drafted, right? Like most people were not trying to go to Vietnam. And Bernie's version of anti-imperialism is, is steadfast opposition to the policies that are that come down from on high, but then steadfast support of the rank and file soldiers uh, whether it's, you know, advocating for a better VA, uh, you know, I mean, he, he never paints the soldiers themselves as, as villains and, and, you know, wants to advocate for them. And I think that's the way that the left should talk about rank and file soldiers. I mean, baby killer stuff is a, is a myth, but, you know, 
when you watch Apocalypse Now and you see the soldiers mow down the boat full of innocent Vietnamese who just got like some ducks and a puppy on their boat, like it was a rank and file soldier who carried out that massacre. So obviously, like much of the evils that come from war are carried out by rank and file soldiers. And in the particularly, you know, sadistic and grisly cases like that, I mean, obviously people should be tried for war crimes and everything. But I mean, th- that part of Rambo's monologue where he says he can't even get a job parking cars. I mean, that's real. Like, and that's not something that leftists want to see in the world. Uh, it's a political dead end and it's kind of mistakes holding the masters of war accountable for their crimes by thinking that you should somehow punish individual soldiers. I have a question for both of you about something I noticed that I'm not quite sure what to do with, which I think may be forming, you know, it forms a much uh, smaller part of the film, but, you know, I noticed it a few times and I think it's worth bringing up. There are a few shots that are very deliberate that have lots and lots of brands in them. There's a shot towards the end where, you know, when Rambo is kind of descending on the police station, where there's a shot of just like the main drag going into the town and it's just, you know, Rexall, Shell, you know, there's like all these brands and I'm not really sure what that's about, but it's very deliberate. And I wondered why that was inserted into the film. Do either of you have any insight into what the film is doing there? Clearly one of the threads of the whole movie is the, you know, Martin Luther King line about the the bombs that are dropped in Vietnam explode on the American streets. And I noticed that shot in particular too, Luke, that, you know, you look, it, it's the shot of the town and you're like, oh, that could be any town. That could be my town. Like it, it was clear that Rambo was going on this shooting spree on the streets of a very typical American town. And it, yeah, it was, it was the, the bomb from Vietnam exploding back at home. Yeah. Do you think those brands are supposed to be symbolic of civilization? Like the fact that America is advanced enough to, you know, create these multinational corporate edifices. And and now here's Rambo, like who is sort of like regressed to an almost animal state, the Viet Cong state, sort of defiling this vista. I mean, what's the first thing that he explodes, right? It's a gas station, which is this you know, central uh, business of American life, right? That we all have to drive cars. We're this car-centric society. And the first thing he does is uh, run the army truck over the filling stations and then explodes the entire gas station. I mean, the thing that I think made the image stick out most for me is the fact that everything up until that point, all the sort of establishing shots, the town and stuff have all been about showing how kind of bucolic and provincial and local this is. And then all of a sudden there's this very jarring shot that's like, actually, this has the same kind of homogenous strip when you drive into the town that like, you know, yeah, any town in America could have like the same 10 companies are just kind of represented there. But I'm not really sure how that fits into kind of the broader thesis on the film we've been developing. It just, it's it stuck out to me as an image that was quite disparate from uh, the rest of the images of the town in the film. It is a choice for sure. What the choice means though, I'm not certain. And I think a lot of it depends on like what brands mean to you. One other thing that I noticed on the second viewing, uh, so I, we already talked about how Rambo becomes the Viet Cong in, uh, on American soil. But uh, what are the two central conflicts of the 60s and 70s. One is Vietnam War, obviously. The other is the civil rights movement. And I realized on the second watching, Rambo, I mean, there's there's a million things that are in this vein. I mean, for one thing, the, the deputy, despite the fact that they're in the Pacific Northwest, right? They're like almost to Canada. In fact, they filmed the movie. Filmed in BC. And actually, yeah. uh, a lot of the guns had to be imported 
into Canada and a huge number of them were stolen. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, there's like a whole bunch of guns. So Rambo caused American gun culture to spill into our uh, gun free uh, backwater up here in Canada. So the bombs were dropped in Vietnam that then exploded in the United States that then like drifted up north of the 49th parallel. This is crazy. (laughs) So they're in the Pacific Northwest, but the, the sheriff's deputy for some reason, has a Southern accent. I don't know if you guys picked up on this. And even the sheriff himself does not have a Southern accent, but he is a a character straight out of small town, Southern town, you know, Bull Connor, like someone like that sort of reactionary. And then there's all these other things, you know, when, when Rambo is in the basement of the police station, they say that he, he stinks and they need to clean him up. So what do they do? They turn a fire hose on him, which obviously this was... It's one of the central images of the civil rights movement, just like from Birmingham, you know, black people getting uh, fire hoses turned on them as they're trying to protest. When Rambo is out in the woods and the cops try to get him, what do they do? They unleash the dogs to try to get him. I mean, there's there's just so many of uh, these images that seem like they can't be an accident, that they're trying to portray him as uh, the victim of the other central people's movement of the 1960s and 70s, which was the civil rights movement. He becomes the kind of uh, Southern black person who has the state turned against him and, and oppresses him. And again, what exactly we do with that, I don't know. I mean, is is that appropriate to think of him that way? I feel like the right is constantly co-opting that imagery, isn't it? I mean, we're especially seeing it now under lockdown, right? Right. You know, it has its right-wing uses. But as we've discussed, I don't think it is a purely reactionary thing. I mm-hmm. mean, like when you see when, when a, a soldier who's returned from Vietnam is just trying to go through a, a town to try to find somebody who he had a connection with, but you know, lost that person, and he's arrested and he is hosed down in the basement of a police station. I mean, that's awful reactionary stuff. He is, he is a victim in that case. Colonel, you came out here to find out why one of your machines blew a gasket. You don't seem to want to accept the fact that you're dealing with an expert in guerrilla warfare. With a man who's the best, with guns, with knives, with his bare hands. A man who's been trained to ignore pain, ignore weather, to live off the land, to eat things and to make a billy goat puke. In Vietnam, his job was to dispose of enemy personnel, to kill, period. Win by attrition. Well, Rambo was the best. On another note, Luke, earlier you mentioned that there hasn't been the same kind of canon of Iraq war movies as there has been for Vietnam movies. I mean, I remember sort of in the late Bush era, there was a wave of liberal Iraq movies, movies like In the Valley of Ella or Stop Loss. You know, people might not have heard of those movies because they've been completely forgotten and there was not much of an appetite for them at the time. And since then, I feel like I could be missing one or two, but I feel like there have really only been two Iraq movies that have caught the public's imagination, and they are The Hurt Locker and American Sniper. And those are both movies where the politics of the Iraq war are neutralized. You know, they're very ground level. They're very much from the POV of the soldiers. The The attitude towards the war is basically, why the hell is it that we're here? Um, it makes no sense that we're here. But the film's relationship with the soldiers, I think, is different than Rambo First Blood and the other major Vietnam movies, because 
in the Vietnam movies, the soldiers are often kind of tragic figures, whereas in both The Hurt Locker and American Sniper, the soldiers are kind of depicted as these like amazing, like badass warriors in a way. I mean, not that those movies aren't without their ambiguities, but I think the big takeaway from Hurt Locker and American Sniper is, well, the Iraq War may have been a boondoggle for a number of reasons. Who knows what they are? But one thing that can't be denied is we've got a soldier who can aim his gun and shoot it two miles away and hit that guy from an incredible distance. Like, you know, we've still got the best soldiers in the world and they have almost kind of like redeemed this thing. And that's very very different. It's too bad that the war itself was unjust because we got some guys who could really kick ass. If if we could get them a good reason to kick ass, they could really do it. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing that, you know, of all the Iraq movies that were made, like it was those two with that message that resonated. And I'm not quite sure why it is that that's the narrative that emerged from the Iraq war when it wasn't from from the Vietnam War. Because, I mean, many people died, m- many of our boys died in the Iraq War as well, right? And we also lost the war. I mean, we, uh-huh. we didn't go, it, it wasn't the unambiguous victory that everyone predicted it would be. The, you know, our boys, despite, again, be vastly outgunning the enemy, uh, did basically suffer a defeat in Iraq. I I suppose there are a few possible explanations for why Iraq doesn't have the kind of, I guess, cultural cachet that that Vietnam has and why the films haven't been so resonant. Um, I mean, there are some some kind of very obvious explanations, like the fact that there was no draft for the Iraq War, despite Michael Moore's uh, prediction in 2000 and what was it, 2003, that if Bush was reelected, he'd reinstate the draft. So, I mean, there was no conscription. Another possible explanation is, I mean, a lot more American soldiers were killed in Vietnam than were killed in Iraq, right? I want to say by a factor of about 10 or something like that. But I have another potential explanation, and this is, you know, possibly heavily influenced by my reading choices the past few days. But um, I really think one of the perhaps underexplored or less well understood aspects of Barack Obama's appeal was a kind of anti-political one. I think Joe Biden is pretty explicit about the fact that he, you know, he's he wants to neutralize politics. Like his appeal, if he has one, is, you know, it's the it's the whole back to brunch thing. It's like you're fatigued by the Trump era, but I'm going to I'm going to be a president who's more conventional. I'm not going to tweet and you, you're just not going to have to think about this in the same way. Um, there's not going to be news stories. They're going to freak you out in the same way. And, and you're not going to have to worry about politics as much. You know, I think and I think that's less well understood. And I think because there was so much fatigue with the Bush administration, there was so much fatigue with the war on terror. I mean, there was a lot of anger about those things as well and a lot of protests about them, which, you know, Obama kind of in his own very ingenious way kind of co-opted. And, um, you know, it's funny, I was just reading the section in the in his book where he's talking about his famous anti-war speech that he gave in uh, in Chicago which hilariously, the whole arc of the speech is like, he spends much of the speech talking about how he's not actually against war. He's just against dumb war and sure. all, all, the, all this kind of stuff. He actually sort of accepts the general parameters of the war on terror. Um, he was never really a, a hardened critic of the war in the way that some on the left were. But, you know, he did co- he did kind of co-opt and absorb a lot of that anti-war sentiment. But I think as he was doing that, he was also absorbing a side of it that was less political and that was just sort of fatigued with the, I mean, the sort of utopianism of the Bush doctrine abroad, which, 
you know, for for neoconservatives, right, their project was an internationalist one. For people like Christopher Hitchens, who we talked about on a recent bonus episode, there were actually grand global ambitions that were being played out through the war on terror. And I think a lot of people, in addition to finding the war on terror and, and the various proxy wars that together constituted it, they found those things morally objectionable. But I think a lot of people also, you know, just wanted it to kind of uh, go away. And what Obama successfully did is he turned the war on terror, instead of being this thing that was like loud and in your face, you know, he turned it into a kind of ambient presence in American life. Uh, something that was still there in the background, but was kind of peripheral in a way that it, it had not been. It had been so central um, between, you know, 2001 and, and, and 2008. I mean, particularly 2001 and 2006. It had been so central. So I think the period where the, the Iraq War was really central to the cultural imaginary was a lot shorter than it was for Vietnam. It's not that the war went away. It's that the war sort of became an ambient presence in American life. And it was easier to kind of uh, ignore. And I think people were less interested in kind of interrogating the war. And that's why perhaps it, it, it didn't inspire a wave of films like Vietnam did that were at least kind of nominally critical of, of the whole enterprise. Right. And this is what you can do when you carry out war without a draft and especially when you move to drones, right? I mean, the war can just go on for forever, but it doesn't occupy that same place in the American imaginary every day, mostly because there aren't as many bodies returning home in body bags. If you can get away with the minimal casualties of your own soldiers, then you can just do war forever, right? You, if it's a video game, then you can just play that video game for as long as you want, for years and decades. Also, the Iraq War is probably a little bit less resonant because how many times can a country lose its innocence, right? Like Vietnam was an incredible shock to America because it was supposedly the first war America lost. I mean, the Korean War is maybe an ambiguous case. It was also perceived as the first unjust war. You can't really keep having that shock and have it be as resonant each time, can you? Right. And that is one of the other things that is so fascinating about this movie. I mean, it's specific politics about specific things that it's depicting aside. It's clearly a movie in which like America is going through some a really wrenching existential reckoning with itself. And like it doesn't like what it is finding out about itself as it is going through that reckoning. Right. Like you you see that with Rambo. It plays out in reactionary ways. It plays out in progressive ways. But it is a country that is trying to uh, exercise its demons. And uh, it's a really painful process to watch. Well, I hope we've done Rambo First Blood uh, justice. I certainly enjoyed watching it. I think this was my second time seeing it as well. And I mean, you know, uh, all, all politics aside, it's it's also just a really good action movie. A pleasure to watch. I'm sure this won't be the last time I watch it. But I, I guess before we let you go, Mike, I mentioned a, a few things you're involved in off the top. But uh, since you are our guest, uh, I think this is where we give you real estate to plug anything. Um, I think your book, for example, has just gone into a, another print run or something like so, that. Me and Megan Day's book, Megan Day, who listeners of your podcast will be familiar with, who was on this show talking about You've Got Mail recently. She and I wrote a book uh, called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. The paperback version will be out in the spring. We just finished a, uh, you know, the book came out. Uh, when was that? Like the end of February 2020. So some things have happened in the world since it first came out. So uh, we've written a new uh, preface for it that will go over some of those things. We also co-host a podcast together on Jacobin Radio called The Vast Majority. 
And besides that, we're publishing almost 50 new articles every week on jacobinmag.com, many of which are written by Luke Savage. So your listeners are probably already <laughs> checking that out, but if they're not, they, they should. Well, I think that's the first time I've ever given a guest the opportunity to plug something and they've plugged me uh, in, in response. <laughs> that's so. what the editor's <laughs> job is, Luke. <laughs> well, I guess we'll just sign off here. Uh, thank you again, Micah, for joining us. This was uh, super fun. We'd love to have you back sometime. Until next week, folks, I'm Luke Savage. I'm Will Sloan. See you next time, folks. i